And I'm really grateful for that. I was thinking this week about my boys and what we've been doing a lot lately is spending time over at my next door neighbor Chris's house. He's got a way cooler backyard than we do because he's got power tools and he lets them use them. Yeah. Um, He has a massive tree with a big swing that you can get going like 15 feet off the ground. So of course the boys love that. See if they can like kick the branches which when you're kicking the very thing that's holding you up, I'm not sure that's a good idea. But again, boy stuff. They, he has a, a man cave in the back of his yard that has a dartboard, one of those old school hockey tables, and, and lots and lots of instruments that they can play very loudly, very off-key. So they make a point of wanting to go over there. And so we chase our balls over there. And, and quite honestly, I think that they're starting to just kick the ball over the fence for the excuse to go over and see what Mr. Chris is doing. So last week, we're sitting in Mr. Chris's backyard. Ethan and I are kicking the ball back and forth, and it rolls under this tree. And I go to grab the ball, and there are these probably three-inch long spines on there. Uh, it just massive, uh, what are those called? Thorns, thank you. So massive thorns. If, this, if that is where we're headed today, we're in trouble. Start praying right now. If I can't even think of the word thorns. Massive thorns on this tree. And so I'm like, hey, Chris, what type of tree is this? And he laughs. He goes, well, it's supposed to be a lemon tree. I planted it 10 years ago, and it has yet to produce a single lemon. It produces tons of thorns. But apparently when he was pruning it, he may have damaged the rootstock in some way that it doesn't actually produce lemons. And so he's like, I, I, I've been actually planning on getting rid of it at some point. I want to tear it up and actually plant a lemon tree that will produce lemons. But at this point, I guess we can just call it a thorn tree. And I feel like that's a perfect illustration of the heart of what James is pointing at in the passage that we're going to be looking at today. So if you have a Bible, turn with me to James chapter 1. It's right towards the back of your Bible. If you don't have one, there's some Bibles in the seat backs in front of you. Feel free to grab one. But we're going to be in... I'm sorry, we're in James chapter 2. Today we are going to get to what I would suggest is the thesis statement of James's entire letter to the believers that he's writing to. And that is, it doesn't matter what you claim if it's not actually backed up by fruit. If there is no fruit, then your words are suspect. And so we read in James chapter 2, and we're going to begin reading in verse 14. What good is it, my brothers and my sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or a sister is without clothes or daily food, and if one of you says to them, hey, go in peace, keep warm and well-fed, but you actually do nothing about their physical needs, what good does that do? In the same way, faith by itself, if it's not accompanied by action, is dead. Now, someone might say, well, that you have faith and I have deeds, but you show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. I mean, you believe that there's one God? Well, that's good. But even the demons believe that, and they shudder. You foolish person, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Wasn't our father Abraham considered righteous in what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness, and he was called God's friend. 
So you see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. In the same way, not even Rahab the prostitute considered right, or it was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and spent them off in a different direction. So as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. This is the center post, the core, the thesis of what James is driving at throughout the entire letter that he's writing. But before we dive into that scripture and begin to pull it apart, I do want to, I want to address the elephant in the room. And that is that we could read this and begin to think that it is in some way contradictory to other passages that we read in scripture, particularly from the Apostle Paul. Because Paul was adamant that we are saved by nothing but faith alone, right? And let's just throw a couple of them. Can we throw Romans 3.28 up on the board here for a moment? This is Romans 3.28. It says, for we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law, apart from the good things that we try to do. You can't earn it. He says that again in Ephesians 2. For it is by grace you've been saved through faith. And this isn't from yourselves. It is a gift of God, not by works, so that nobody can boast. Nobody can stand up and say, look what I've done. I've made myself righteous. I've earned my standing with God. And he's saying, no, it doesn't work that way. And it's passages like that. It's Paul's constant reminder that we are saved by faith alone that caused the reformers like Martin Luther to say, listen, we honestly think that James's letter, it's in the Bible, we're going to respect it, but quite honestly, it feels like an epistle of straw next to all of the other epistles. That this is a weak, light epistle that ultimately is going to kind of just get burned up like chaff next to the power and the weight of the gospel message found in Paul's letters. Because for the, the reformers like Luther, their drumbeat their, the thing that they focused on was sola fide, faith alone. We are saved by faith alone. And so I want to ask, are these two things in conflict? Is it conflicting to say that we're saved by faith alone, but then on, in, out of the next breath to say, but it's not a faith that's not alone, that there are works that will naturally be part of our lives? Because faith without works is dead, James would say. Are those two things in conflict? And I would suggest that they are not. And here's the reason why. Paul and James are focused on two very different parts of our faith. Paul is focused on the roots of our salvation. He's focused on how do we know that we're saved, whereas James is focused on the fruit of our salvation. How do we, what are the results that come from it? What flows out of it? Paul would say, and rightfully so, you cannot earn your standing with God. You're saved by faith alone. And I would agree wholeheartedly, and I believe that James would agree wholeheartedly. But if you are rooted in, in Jesus Christ, if you find and plant your faith firmly in him, then there's going to be a natural outgrowth that happens. Fruit will naturally be produced in your life as the Holy Spirit begins to do his work in your life. You'll see, free, you'll see fruit produced like love, joy, peace, 
patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control, right? I mean, even Jesus acknowledged this. Remember in, in John chapter 15, as he's talking to his disciples, he says, listen, guys, I'm the vine or the taproot. You're a branch off of that vine. And if you remain connected, abiding with me, and I in you, then what will happen? You'll bear much fruit. But apart from me, disconnected from me, on your own, no fruit whatsoever will be produced. So in no way are Paul and James conflicting with one another. Paul is simply focused on the roots of our salvation, namely faith by grace alone, And James is focused on the fruit of our salvation. To put it another way, um, the fruit of our life, our good works are not a prerequisite in order to earn our salvation, but they're a natural response to it. Does that make sense? Because it's it's been very helpful for me to understand it this way. I can't earn it. It is... It, I, am, I don't have to do good things in order to be saved. But once I'm saved, this will be the natural outgrowth of it. And by the way, the reformers like Calvin and Martin Luther acknowledged exactly the same thing. So although they kind of, Luther particularly put James's epistle down, they ended up saying exactly the same thing. Let's put a couple of quotes up here. Can we put up Calvin first? John Calvin said this. We are justified by faith alone, but it is not a faith that is alone. Okay? Or how about Martin Luther? He said, we are not saved by works, but if there be no works, there must be something amiss with faith. Okay, so obviously, James's point that the fruit is important is important. And today we're going to talk about the fruit that our lives produce. So if you will, let's go ahead and begin working through this section here. We're going to begin in verse 14. James starts, what good is it, my brothers and my sisters, if if somebody claims to have faith, but you don't actually see any fruit in their life? They have no deeds. Can such a faith save them? Or I'd put it a different way. To get at the heart of what he's saying here, is it really faith at all if there's no fruit being produced? Maybe we're more like thorn trees, not lemon trees or apple trees. And then he he illustrates his point of how just words are cheap. Words, if not backed up with action, are incredibly cheap. Our actions speak far louder than our words. And he gives an illustration from regular life that anybody who's ever walked into Target or somewhere else and you've had somebody with a sign asking for help or you've had somebody sitting on the side of the road basically saying, can you help me out? We can understand this one. He says, suppose a brother or a sister is without clothes and daily food. They're hungry. They're cold. It's starting to rain outside. And if one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but you don't do anything about their physical needs, what good is that? I mean, that's tantamount to seeing somebody who is in need, somebody that's a neighbor, and going up to him and saying, listen, God loves you. God's going to provide for you. He's going to send somebody to give you what you need. Not me, but somebody will come along, so I want you to be encouraged. All right, I love you. Bye. And you're going, wait a minute. Words don't fill a stomach. Words don't keep me warm. Actions do. 
couple of decades later, James would say something, um, the Apostle John would say something very similar. Can we put 1 John up there for a moment? He says, if anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need, but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let's not just love with words and speech, but in actions and in truth. Words don't fill people's stomachs. Actions do. And if you say that you love somebody, your, your actions will declare that. And that's the heart of what James is getting at. He's using this simply as an illustration, though, to point out that our actions speak far louder than our words do. So he says, suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food, and if one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well-fed, but you don't do anything to actually help their physical needs, then what good is that? And in the same way, faith by itself, if it's not accompanied by action, is dead. So it's Father's Day. Let's, let's think about our kids for a second. Imagine that you have a grown adult child in your home. Or imagine perhaps you are a grown adult child living in your parents' home. And you tell your parents, you know, I really want to take responsibility for my life. I want to be an adult more than just in word. And yet, you stay up until all hours of the night playing video games. You sleep in way past noon. You depend on your parents for everything. To make your food, to, to clean up your room, to wash your clothes and fold them and put them away for you. You, you don't make any effort to go get a job. And when you finally get one, you can't keep it because you don't show up. At some point, your parents are going to say to you, we know you say you want to be responsible, but your actions say otherwise. And your actions are speaking more loudly than your words are. Paul, I'm sorry, James, is pointing at the believers that he's writing to and goes, guys, if you really have faith in God, then allow your life to prove it. Allow your actions to follow suit. And then he, he begins to address uh, people who try to intellectualize their faith and says, no, 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 it's more about what I believe than anything. It's about what's up here and not what's in here. And so he comes up with kind of a, a hypothetical conversation between him and somebody who would try to intellectualize their faith. Someone might say to me, well, that you have faith and I have deeds. Well, I tell you what, you show me your faith just in words alone, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. Paul, James is not suggesting right here that he doesn't have faith. He does, but he's also saying, I have the fruit in my life to be able to back up that claim. What do you have? And they're saying, well, I have, I have my claim to faith. I believe there's one God. And he goes, oh, you do. You believe there's one God. That's fabulous. Do you want a cookie? Would you like a gold star? Because guess what? Even the demons believe that there's one God. And they shudder. That term shudder there means a, a, a rough and uneven surface. In other words, they get goosebumps. So the demons, their belief actually produces fruit in their life. They're not going to bend a knee, but at least they're terrified. What does it do for you? Your intellectual assent to this thing called Jesus Christ dying, the gospel message, and, and our Father God. What does your faith produce in your life? Is it simply intellectualism? Because if so, it's dead on arrival. 
Jesus put it this way. If you're really my disciple, then you'll do what I say. You'll, you'll obey my teaching. And then you'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. He continues on in this passage now to back up what he's saying by giving two illustrations from the history of the Israelites, Abraham and Rahab. Let's keep reading. Verse 20. He says, you foolish person, do you want evidence? And by the way, you foolish person, super not an affirmation. Not an, hey, you silly willy. No, I mean, this is, he's being pretty harsh here. Sorry, I have young kids. That's the kind of like, yeah, anyway. Stop that. Come on. <laughs> you foolish person, do you want evidence that your faith without deeds is useless? Well, wasn't our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. And then the scripture was fulfilled that says that Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. And he was called God's friend. So you see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not simply by faith alone that has no other fruit. And in the same way was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction. In this short section, he takes two people from Israel's history that could not be more diametrically opposed to one another. You got Abraham, the patriarch of Israel, and you have Rahab, a pagan prostitute. Abraham, one of the most respected, revered people in all of Israel's history, the father of their nation, Rahab a pagan harlot who was not respected even by her own people. And yet both of them exhibited their faith in God through their actions. For Abraham, it was doing something that as a father I can't even fathom. Taking his son Isaac, through whom God had promised, I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to, through this boy... I'm going to give you more ancestors or more progeny than the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. And God says, do you trust me enough to put even this child on the altar? Are you willing to sacrifice him? Do you trust me that much? And although I can't even imagine what that would have been like for Abraham to walk up the mountain with his son, who was probably a grown boy because he's carrying the wood, so he's strong. Carrying the wood up there. And Abraham has the, the, the knife and the fire in his hand for the, the sacrifice. And his son's going, Dad, where's the, where's the sheep for this? And he goes, Son, God will provide. And God did. The beautiful part of this is that God did not force his son to go through with it. It was foreshadowing of when God, our Father, would sacrifice his own son for us. He would give his firstborn, the son of the promise, for us. But Abraham's actions declared his faith. And I want to make something very clear about this. Abraham was not saved by his actions. But Abraham's actions 
gave evidence to the faith. He was saved by his faith that was then proven by his actions. He followed through on what he believed. Did that make sense? Does that make sense? He wasn't saved by what he did. He was saved by his faith that then exhibited itself through obedience. And in the same way, you've got Rahab. Here's a prostitute in a pagan nation, in a walled city that was considered to be unconquerable. And when the people of God begin to slowly make their way into the promised land and word begins to spread, the God of Israel is great. We've never seen a God like this. The people begin to talk and Rahab had faith that the God of Israel was the one true God. And so when the spies show up at her doorstep, rather than calling them out and giving them over to the king of of Jericho, hold on one second, I apologize. Let's just deal with it. Rather than giving them over. Oh, boy. Come on. Where did I go? You want me to get the other one, Mikey? Forget it. This is fun. No. 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 I can project. I love you. You owe me dinner. Good. So rather than, rather than giving them over to the king of Jericho and basically um, proving her, her faithfulness to her own people, she recognizes that this is the one true God, and so she hides the Israelite spies. And in so doing, her actions proved her faith, and she was declared righteous. Again, not righteous because of her own because of what she did, but righteous because of her faith. This is so crazy today. What's going here? We don't have to look to scripture to see that this is true. Just in our own little community, let me pull out a couple of examples of how I, have, how I am watching people's faith produce fruit. Um, I, I think of last week you guys got a chance to meet John Began, one of our missionaries that we get to support as a church. John was a pastor and although it's not a high-paying job, although it's not always the most comfortable job, it is a secure job. And he left that secure job as a pastor of a church in this city to be a full-time missionary to the homeless in our community. That is him putting his faith into action. His heart broke for the men and women that he was rubbing shoulders with on a daily basis. And he recognized, if I, I can't just turn my back, God is calling me to love on them, and so I will do it with my whole life, with my wife and everything. We are all in, and he is. I think of, um, I think of Greg and Lisa Barone, a couple that God has brought to our church about a year ago. He was transferred here with his work out of Houston, and he, he, it happened at a very inopportune Number three. 
Come on, this is the, the tri Oh, yeah. So Greg and Lisa gets transferred out here. And honestly, it's hard for their family. They got, they got three boys living at home. It's hard to say goodbye to their city, particularly when their baseball team is doing well, although, you know, baseball, not a real sport. I'm watching you, Frankie. Just saying. Water polo, if they showed more of that, I'd be less irritable about sports that they have. Any, any sport where you pay, play over 100 games in a season, what's the point of watching? I'm just saying, hold on, sit down, sit down, you don't have to get up. They leave Houston, they come out here to California. They think this is going to be for a year, maybe two, because that's as long as the contract's going to last. And then all of a sudden, they recognize that God is doing something out here in this state, particularly in this community and at Lighthouse. And they feel like their family is growing, but also they recognize that God is calling them to get involved, to get up out of their deck chair and join what God is doing. Or to change up the analogy a little bit, to get out of the seat, out of the stands and onto the field because they recognize that they have a part to play as well. And so Greg and Lisa pray about it and talk about it because his contract is coming to an end and they're going to transfer back and they say, you know what, we can't leave. We need to stay here. And so he was willing to take a lateral move that was actually a drop in pay in a, in a city that's very difficult to live in financially was willing to take a drop in pay so that they could stay here for the next five to six years and see just what God has for their family and for this family. Faith in action. I think of Wendy and Leslie and Karen, three women in our community that when, when another woman in our community had a, a, a physical emergency and was hospitalized, rather than just going, hey, be warm and well-fed. Hey, we're going to pray for you. They mobilized around her, became like a splint to hold her up, walked with her through that whole period of time, and even after the, the medical emergency passed, they recognized, no, God is calling us to be sisters to you and walk with you, and they continue to do so in a beautiful way that, that gives God the glory. I think of Lauren, who's a preschool teacher in our church. Uh, she's one of our young adults. And when she went down to Costa Rica this last year with Don and Jill, her heart was broken for the young kids that she was interacting with. And she recognized, I feel like God is calling me here. And so she has taken the audacious step to quit her regularly scheduled job here in America where she makes some good money and where it's stable and safe. And she is moving down to Costa Rica. Wow, hi. She's moving down to Costa Rica. Thank you, sir. To just say, God, here I am. She's going to become a teacher down in Costa Rica. A beautiful picture of faith. I got others. Um, I think of the Hamiltons and the Jennings. Two of the families that were standing up here back on Mother's Day when we did the, um, the child dedications. You remember that? The Hamiltons a mom and daughter, and the Jennings. Both of whom, both of these families who had pretty much raised children, they were out of the house, they were good to go, they were done with diapers and all of that. And yet, when parts of their family who had babies, infants, were unable to care for them, they said, fine, we're stepping back into this. And they have pretty much adopted their grandchildren and are raising them as their own children. They are giving up sleep 
They're giving up the freedom to do what they will with their time. Don't need this anymore? Happy day. They're giving up all of the other things that they could be doing in order to love on these children because these children need it. And it is an act of faith to do so. And it costs them a great deal. But because of their faith in God and because their submission to him, they are loving on their family. And it is a beautiful picture of their faith in action. And by the way, I know that these are some really big ones. And it's not all big. It doesn't always, it's not always the flashy stuff that we like to celebrate. It's the little stuff. It's the little acts of of obedience as well. The little acts of love. For instance, last Halloween, after we had our harvest gathering, Don Shannon, our our church's missionary that's kind of full-time loving on us and helping unlock the city for us to get involved, Don showed up to walk into the office, and as he looked down the street, there's wrappers kind of just floating down the street. So rather than just walking up to his office like any one of us might, he gets out and he begins to pick up candy wrappers all the way down the street and all the way back down. And one of our neighbors walks over and says, hey, I just want to thank you for doing that. It, it says a great deal about your heart that you would do that. I think about Byron. This faithful man that every 4th of July, after our community comes and starts burning up their their income out in the parking lot here, (laughs) every 5th of July, Byron is out there at about 6 a.m. with a whisk broom, cleaning up other people's messes, not because he caused it, but simply because he is a good neighbor. He's a good representative of Jesus Christ. I think of... The men and and women in this church who have provided meals for new families or for hurting families, many of whom they'd never met, and yet they do it anyway, and they do it gladly because they have been blessed, and it's a way to be a blessing. I think of the ways that when people are hurting in our church, You as a family mobilize and come alongside and pray. I see what happens after services when people are are sharing and crying and suddenly people are praying over one another. You don't have to be a pastor in order to be a minister. We're all ministers and I see it happening. And And that's why I just, I cannot help but be grateful to be a part of this family because we are a family and we're in it together. And these are just a few of the myriad examples of faith expressing itself in action, of the roots of our salvation producing fruit of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control. And so as James comes to the end of this section, which really is the nexus of everything he's saying, it's the thesis through which everything else flows, He says, as the body without the spirit, in other words, the body without breath is dead in the same way, so faith without deeds is dead. It's not that you are saved by your faith. It's simply that your deeds give evidence to your faith. And so this morning, as I share this with you, I can't help but think of a message I heard probably two decades ago at a high school retreat. The, the guy got up, I'd never met him before, but he got up to share the message, shared the gospel message, shared an opportunity for people to give their hearts to Jesus. 
Which, by the way, is very simple. Jesus Christ paid it. You don't have to do lots of good things to earn your salvation. It is a gift freely purchased and and provided for you. The only thing you need to do is be a gracious recipient. Accept it and say thank you. That's it. And as after sharing the gospel message, and it's as easy, by the way, if you have not done so, it's as easy as saying, God, thank you for dying for me. Jesus, thank you, or Jesus, thank you for dying for me. I, get, I know that you died to protect and, and give me new life, and I receive that gift of salvation. Would you now not only be the Savior of my life, but my Lord? Or some other rendition, because it's not a magical incantation by which you're saved. It is a genuine faith that even exhibits itself, expresses itself through the words that you say. And if you want to pray that, come and talk to me. I'd love to to walk with you in that, or Pastor Jeff would. But here's his point. After sharing the gospel message, he says, now, usually you're probably used to people saying, hey, we're going to do an altar call. I want everybody to stand that prayed that prayer. Or I want you to come forward as a tangible declaration and as a representation of your new faith. But I'm not going to do that. We're like, you can't not have people stand. And he goes, because if you really meant it, we'll know. We will know because we'll see it in the way that you treat your brother and your sister and your friends. We'll see it in the way that you treat your mom and dad. We'll see it in the way that you make choices in your life. And even though your friends are going a certain way and making these decisions, you'll say, no, I don't want to go that way. We'll see it in the fruit of your life. So you don't need to stand up and tell us you have faith. We will see your faith by your fruit. And this morning, I give you the same invitation. If you genuinely have faith in Jesus Christ that he died for you, and if you have given God permission to not only be the savior of your life, but your Lord then you don't have to tell us. We will see it in the fruit your lives produce. So I'm going to invite the worship team to come over, to come forward, and we're going to respond now. If you need prayer, because I recognize that some of us are carrying some very heavy loads, and if you need prayer, Randy, if you and Patty would come up here. Kat and I will be over here. Jeff's in the back. If you need prayer, we are available to pray with you. But if you simply want to declare that you have faith, then do so through the way you live. And let me just ask our Father God and the Holy Spirit that he has given us to help us in that endeavor because we can't do it by our own strength. And it's not by sheer determination that the the trees produce fruit. It's simply by being connected to the life-giving vine. It's the spirit within us that will produce that fruit. So, Father God, we thank you for loving us. Jesus, we thank you for your willingness to give your life for us. God, we thank you for the reminder this morning that although we are saved by faith alone, it is a faith that is not alone. We pray that you would continue to work in our lives to will and to act according to your will, that, that what we do would be a reflection of your heart, that we would love as you have loved, that the world, when they look at our lives, will recognize that we are your disciples by the way we love and by the fruit that they see in our lives that can only come from the Holy Spirit's working and our connection with you. We pray this thing, these things, Jesus, in your holy name. Amen. Let's worship together.